I'll start by saying thank you to everyone who watched Luedi, uh, episode 170. I've seen several thousand clicks um, between viewers and listeners, and a wide audience that's been sort of getting in touch. Uh, members of the Lebanese Jewish community and uh, simply Lebanese all around the world, either with fond memories of that neighborhood or uh, unaware that that sort of uh, central part of the city um, used to be entirely different to the point that it's unrecognizable today. Anyway, again, thank you. Uh, I'll also kindly request anyone who's been watching the episodes or, or listening, if you're on YouTube, just subscribe. And the reason I'm asking this is because there are minimum requirements for the YouTube channel to kind of let you do more things with the channel. And the YouTube studio has its sort of minimum criteria. So I'll just kindly ask those that have that sort of ability, you know, just to click subscribe. Uh, it, it would mean a lot because I think it would it would help accelerate a few other plans I have in mind. Uh, but there are minimum uh, requirements for that. So uh, that aside, I'll I'll explain why I timed the release of Elwedi over the weekend. Um, things were so bad over the weekend in Beirut, and I was just following it on social media or simply watching uh, Lebanese stations uh, live. Um, that's the kind of violence that sort of makes anyone hesitate and worry that things could spiral out of control. In 2020, Lebanon is never far from that kind of violence. So I thought if there's anyone that's willing to sort of detach a bit and just go into a different chapter of Lebanese history, you know, why not? Sort of uh, some respite. And June 6, uh, just I was looking outside my window here, and you have demonstrations, you have protesters, you have marches all over New York, and chants that they're different causes, different, different issues. But they kind of feel familiar because it's just, it just has that kind of, um, it's so fresh to see all of that in Lebanon and then seeing it here, you can't help but link the two. So it's, uh, it's seductive, it's attractive. Um, and I'm watching it from my window here, trying to finish this episode and wa watching the news in Lebanon and seeing the other side of that, the, 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 that low level of violence. And here, although I've sort of asked this question several times in different episodes, the, the violence, you can maybe define that term and, and play around with it and maybe take from it certain things and leave certain things out. But the rioting, the looting, also not too far away, it reminded me a bit of, of Beirut. Not the protest movement, not the demonstrations, but 
the just those images are haunting and uh, it's when you see people that are that are expressing themselves this way some out of pure desperation but um, others taking advantage of the situation and I'll say this and maybe some will disagree here I think the desperation in Lebanon uh, at least when it comes to my world view I guess I see that as something that resonates more I see it as something that's more critical I'm not trying to take away from what's happening in the US it's, it's as critical for American reasons but the desperation in Lebanon that sort of fear of hunger and the the rioting I think uh, in a way you expect that to happen in Lebanon due to years and years of mismanagement and corruption and thuggery that that would eventually happen. It's just that is more uh, within my understanding of the degeneration of, of Lebanon, especially the last few years. In America, it's shocking because the last time I remembered those kinds of scenes uh, was I was I was young the early 1990s in Los Angeles the uh, Rodney King and uh, the riots that broke out and it was a similar kind of uh, an event takes place a, a crime is committed by police against a civilian and there's an there's a sort of justified reaction but then there's also that kind of other sort of step, which is, you know, the sense of anarchy on the streets. And um, <laughs> I was like, well, it's both, both of my worlds. Lebanon and America are going through fundamental transition. And I think we're living through great moments and we're living through horrifying moments. And 2020, I mean, the last the last six months have been taxing on, on anyone who's, uh, who's yearning for something that feels normal. I'm not saying what was normal is necessarily correct today, but uh, it's been it's been a trying time. And then of course you have isolation, quarantine, and then you have rioting. You also have collective euphoria you see things that are very attractive uh, you see people championing what's right and having their voices heard and centers of power paying careful attention it's necessary but I thought maybe a bit of respite is not a bad idea so I just timed that episode to maybe just a bit of a pause and uh, I'll just I'll leave that as sort of just the reasons why I chose Saturday last weekend um, but then after releasing it I sort of took a day off and tried to maybe calibrate what's been happening in Beirut and a lot of hesitation a lot of a lot of caution, um, a lot of reluctance, 
a lot of misguidedness, if that's a word. Um, pointing the finger perhaps in the wrong direction at certain times. Now, these are conversations I've had with friends. These are conversations I've had with guests on the podcast. Uh, these are conversations in my head. And these are thoughts that I've kind of, uh, I think I've sort of been able to articulate better and better over time. Um, I think the term revolution, if it's going to be applied in Lebanon, and if October 17 is that defining moment in modern Lebanese history, where we turn the page, turn the page on the Civil War, I think no one, no one should be afraid or even hesitate to discuss weapons. Now, I'll say this in the same kind of uh, assertion. And no one should avoid the economic crisis. No one should avoid corruption. And I believe this, that yes, I agree. The economic crisis uh, the economic argument, focusing on accountability in particular, and tackling corruption, if that's possible. Uh, these are the noble goals, and I think those should be the sort of those should be those should be the loudest voices because that is the unifying uh, the unifying theme. That is what brought people to the streets on October 17. So that is the that's the core of the protest movement. But no one should say it's not the time to discuss weapons. And the reason I say this is because when is the time to discuss weapons if it's not during the middle of a revolution? Those weapons, and it's not a group, it's not a sect. That's important. It's not like this is pointing the finger at one group and one sect and saying, you're the reason and... This is now a sectarian issue. Completely false. Any group that emerges with that kind of weaponry and that kind of influence and that kind of uh, capability to preserve a regime, to preserve a neighboring regime, to use its weapons when it deems necessary on Lebanese. And that something no one should be afraid of discussing and uh, I think that issue when it's sort of carefully put aside it's basically saying the root cause of Lebanon's uh, inability to emerge from the civil war in particular after the Syrian withdrawal in 2005 the root cause we're going to just sort of leave it alone and focus on the other groups now that's fine talk about all the groups I mean there's no need to sort of look at one and say well they're not as bad as the other even if that is true there's no need for it because all have some form of mafia-like corrupt rule all and that is why that slogan still resonates at least with me and i think 
most people that go to the streets regularly. That is it. So you have to be able to say all of them. But if all of them includes that group with weapons, not not basic weaponry, I'm talking about a sophisticated proxy militia. If you're not able to say that that group uh, is worth discussing at this point, or for taking a step further, saying this is not my protest, June 6 doesn't belong to me, because there are Lebanese who are saying we want those weapons out. We want a peaceful, peaceful end to sub-state weaponry, period. That is how you get out of a civil war mindset anyway. But if you're going to reject those voices, then you're losing, you're losing the, uh, you're losing the, you're losing the revolution. And I don't think sub-state weaponry should be the, uh, the motto of the civil war era militia turned political groupings or the post-war political parties that became part of the problem shouldn't be their cause. This shouldn't be the slogan of Kata'ib or Al-Uwait or Al-Musta'bal or any group. This should be a demand from a protester who wants a better Lebanon. And I think it is a demand of most protesters. I believe this. But then you get into the reasons of why there is reluctance. And I think the reluctance, some of it is justified. Some. There's fear. People know that 15 years of sort of testing the water and seeing if there's a way to peacefully disarm that group's weapons and transition those weapons to the army. If there's any way forward on that, I mean, you, we know what happens. We know what happened. We know what happened. And... Um, I had a conversation recently that I disagreed with the looking back at the 15 years earlier revolt, those protests that erupted March 14, 2005, that, that window. Um, I don't think it was just about Syria or just about sovereignty. I think it was also about accountability. And that's, that's how I remember it. And there are voices that were calling on reform that were eliminated. They're among the first. So we're not going to, we don't have the luxury of every 15 years having the same conversation. And we should be able to challenge that group's weapons and that group's corruption. We should be able to challenge any group's corruption and we shouldn't be nitpicking over uh, whether or not a protester is really supportive of the revolution if they're calling on Hezbollah to disarm. Because once you enter that tunnel, you're part of the problem. And you, I think, are unable to achieve the demands that I think any citizen wants today, which is basic services. And accountability at the sort of the, the the least the minimum requirements a state that functions and can be held to account i think uh it's just you can't get there and 
corruption used to be the uh, the motto, anti-corruption, sorry. That Hezbollah was, quote, clean. That they were sort of the, the least corrupt of the political parties on economics. But the protest movement has been able to take that and say this is a demand from all of us. To the point that Hezbollah supporters were actually challenging Hezbollah, at least in October last year. So that's important. And Hezbollah is clearly not the saving grace of Lebanon. And then you have that old term resistance. There are plenty of resistance groups throughout Lebanese history and throughout modern history. That group sort of has brainwashed brainwashed all of us into believing that it's their term, they deserve it, and that's that. And there's no other justified, quote, resistance group. Well, I'm sorry, it's not a term that they can define on their terms. It's not their term. It's not their right to tell us that we are not capable, that the state is not capable, that the army is not capable. It is not justified. And if they're so concerned over the state's incapabilities, if that's the word, then they should be the first to help rebuild the state, not dislodge the state or pervert the state or eliminate people trying to rebuild the state or, for that matter, hijack the state, keep, keep those around that they tolerate, eliminate everyone else, keep the most mediocre, and put them in front and say, you know what? That's what we can tolerate, and Lebanese have to deal with that. It's almost like a, uh, as long as we're indirectly tolerated by the state, uh, and no one makes a fuss about our weapons, and we have protection in that sense, then we're fine. Everything else, leave it to the most unimpressive uh, people. That's not how a country emerges from a civil war legacy. It's just not how it works. And uh, I was in Beirut in May 2008. And there's that sort of that, that very sort of tense feeling when you see checkpoints emerging, when you see mounds of dirt, when you see people in masks, when you see, when you see violence, when you see damaged windows, when you see damaged cars, flames, and there's fighting for days on end in Hamra, and then you have sort of that memory of 1975 and during the Civil War, and last weekend, and that's not, that's not, a revolution means you accommodate the basic requirements for post-war order. And again, economics, very important. Corruption, very important. I mean, management, critical. And of course, authority, state authority. There's, you need to hold a state to account. We don't have that state to hold to account. We have a regime designated by a group whose 
more capable of fighting than the regime's army. And, uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think that's, uh, minimum. And I'm going to just touch on a piece that my father wrote eight years ago that kind of uh, dances around this issue. Well, actually, it doesn't just dance around the issue. It gets to the point, too. But uh, it's about false narrative. And uh, I think just because one group or one person says something repeatedly, it just doesn't mean it's true. And uh, this is from August 2012. And it's called False and Sometimes Dangerous Ideas. A little less than 2,000 years ago, Claudio Ptolemy, a Roman citizen of Egypt, had a brilliant but false idea. Most people did not realize it until 15 centuries later. His model of the universe had a stationary Earth at its center, with everything else rotating around it. Though false, the model worked perfectly, or so it seemed. It was so good that for centuries, Astronomers used it to track and predict, with a good degree of accuracy, the movements of heavenly bodies across the skies. It really did not matter that Ptolemy's theory was false. It served its purpose well, then, and being false presented no danger. But over time, the purposes became wider than the ability to predict the paths of the sun and the planets. You cannot use Ptolemy's model of a stationary Earth with everything else rotating around it as a basis for making any scientific advance in astronomy, let alone sending a Land Rover to Mars or a man to the moon. That would be dangerous. Very dangerous. Back to Earth. Our little corner of the Earth. Lebanon should be thankful for the recent spate of speeches and declarations on the part of Hezbollah's leadership. The party's arguments in favor of maintaining an independent military status parallel to that of the state have been made very clear. Setting aside broader regional and ideological motivations, which most observers believe are intrinsic to Hezbollah's regional ties and strategic agenda, the party has articulated its Lebanese reasons, quote, for maintaining a separate military force as follows. The Lebanese system is fraught with sectarianism and corruption. The state and its armed forces are too indecisive and too weak to perform their responsibilities in defending the country and deterring our enemy. Hezbollah can do it better because it is able to decide and act independently, and therefore more efficiently, on such matters. The Lebanese should be thankful, instead, of being worried about this. They should accept the status quo happily and take comfort in that Hezbollah is not interested in taking over Lebanon or in pursuing sectarian domination. When Lebanon reaches a point where a strong and just state and a non-sectarian political system and constitution are in place, we can then discuss Hezbollah's self-assigned role as an independent liberation deterrence defense force. To some, and probably many, these arguments sound sensible. They seem to hang together well but in reality, they don't. Like that of Ptolemy, Hezbollah's model is false and doesn't deserve Lebanon's purpose or interest. It is simply impossible to really protect Lebanon 
and really deter Israel by assigning those sovereign functions to a separate military organization parallel to the Lebanese army. It would inevitably make the state weaker and compound Lebanon's inherent fragilities and structural fault lines, even in the best of circumstances. And irrespective of what Hezbollah says or even does, the status quo contributes to the country's downward slide far more than its alleged contribution to Lebanon's strength. The only credible approach to addressing the issue of Hezbollah's autonomous military force within any, quote, defense strategy, inside or outside the national dialogue, quote, is to agree on a credible and realistic transition plan to a point where Hezbollah's military capability is subsumed under the authority of the state, while safeguarding Lebanon's defense capability during and after the transition. If you think this is difficult, and it is, the alternative, i.e. maintaining the status quo, is a lot worse. Even if we dismiss the danger to Lebanon of being a theater for regional conflicts, including especially the looming confrontation between Iran and its many adversaries, and even if you manage to convince the world that Lebanon is not part of any regional alliance, Hezbollah's false logic will continue to present a serious danger. Here is why. If we accept Hezbollah's military autonomy on the basis that the state is not capable enough to be entrusted with the country's defense, it is not a huge leap for some, individuals or groups, to take the law into their own hand on the grounds that the state justice system is not good enough, or for others to stop paying their taxes on the grounds that the state's tax system is not fair enough, or forget others to establish their own local security outfits because the state's police and security agencies are unable to provide adequate protection to all citizens, communities, and neighborhoods. You get the point. That would be dangerous. Very dangerous. Hezbollah can continue to claim that Lebanon's problems precede its existence. To a large extent, that is true. What is false, however, is the notion that Hezbollah's insistence on remaining as a separate and independent military entity is not compounding these problems, or that we can embark on a national effort to fix them while leaving Hezbollah's status as is indefinitely. The protection of Lebanon and the interest of the Lebanese people do not revolve around Hezbollah's weapons. It is a false and dangerous idea. And if it's beyond the protest movement, it may be time for Lebanon to have an organized structure. One that can challenge the regime at home. One that can offer an alternative. One that can say, this is what Lebanon should look like, and these are the principles we have. And that just implies organization with the known threat that they could be attacked violently. But that's at stake. You need to have some structure at home challenging the regime. And it's happening. It is happening. But then, if that structure is still unable and is put in a corner and then is tolerated by Hezbollah and is seen as, in a way, the natural evolution of the post-civil war order, which in Hezbollah's mind means maybe a less corrupt version of the previous regimes and one that is just simply able to do something basic but doesn't touch 
anything related to security or sovereignty. That's not the goal. That's not how you fix Lebanon. You're leaving Lebanon vulnerable and you're leaving Lebanon exposed. And you will end up in another round of violence, if not war. If that's the case, there should be a structure, a organization that is pushing for a regional solution to Hezbollah's weapons. That should be part of the story. It should be in every roundtable discussion. It should be on every panel discussion that there is a country that has the capability of moving forward, but is still stuck. And the reasons it's stuck are not Lebanese only. Hezbollah is a regional story. In 2019, we have all of the above. We have the trash crisis of 2015, accountability. We have economic economic dialogue and, and serious debate over the future policies of Lebanon. A healthy debate and an economic crisis that requires serious, serious work. We also have sovereignty. And you need all of these things to be in the mix. You can't ignore Hezbollah. You can't simply bet on Hezbollah being a neutral observer. Because if the protest movement is to succeed, it simply requires a different Hezbollah to emerge in Lebanon. And no one thinks of Catholic resistance in Northern Ireland today as an IRA struggle. People have moved on. People talk about Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland today. Few have nostalgia for the, for the troubles. In Colombia, people are finally, finally talking about a way to move forward with FARC without its weapons. It's being discussed. It's an issue. It's a healthy issue. And even if it may be hitting stumbling blocks, a few steps back is fine as long as the goal is achieved. There's every post-war order, every single one, every paramilitary group in the Balkans, every, every serious conflict resolution attempt at ending strife and then rebuilding. I mean, disarmament of militia comes first, not last. Thank you.